ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In the northwest of Queensland, right next to the NT border, is the town of Camelwheel. And if you trace your finger down the map from there, following the Georgina River going down, 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 eventually you reach Birdsville. Some years ago, Owen Davies had reached a restless stage in his life. He'd been a farmer, an opal miner and a station manager, and he decided it was time for a long walk. And so he did it. Accompanied by two dogs and a mob of goats, Owen Davies walked the 1,000 kilometres from the top of Queensland to the bottom, walking past sand dunes, rivers, scrub and the beautiful Channel Country. It was the very best way Owen could think of to smooth out some of the bumps in life. And there were, of course, bumps along the way, but all that paled beside the sheer pleasure of walking alone with your goats and dogs through some of the most eerily beautiful land in the world. I spoke with Owen Davies back in 2012. Hello, Owen. Hello, Richard. How would you normally listen to this program? Because you do listen to this program occasionally. Where are, you, where, where are you sometimes when you hear this program? Well, I listen to it when I can, and I could almost be uh, anywhere. But uh, in recent times, uh, I've been working out in uh, western Queensland, west of Baduri on the edge of the Simpson Desert. You know, I might be operating a welder or a, putting down a concrete pad or whatever in a cattle yard. So I'd only get bits and pieces, and um, I tend to stall off, you know, going back to the, back to the job in hand and uh, try and snatch that little bit of extra time on conversation because I've always found it very interesting. You don't think, gee, that cushy bastard in an air-conditioned studio while I'm out here doing all this hot work? No, I hadn't at the time, but now you mention it, I could probably have <laughs> <laughs> on those lines. <laughs> did you grow up on the land? Yes, I did. I grew up in the Mallee country near Swan Hill in Victoria, um, I was involved as a young kid with catching feral animals, foxes, rabbits. You know, I took an interest in the bush that was around me. I'd be looking um, at uh, snakes and reptiles in general, turtles and fishing and, you know, just generally exploring the bush. And, you know, I grew up an only child, for better or for worse. So I learned to be probably, you know, resourceful and inquisitive at a pretty young age. You learned to enjoy your own company like that too, oh, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I certainly never had a you know, problem with that. But, yeah, you know, I was also involved with the wider family, so it wasn't as though I was you know, a total loner by any means. That, that country is so different from the kind of places we're going to be talking about now. When, as a kid, did you first get a picture in your head of what the country is like up in the north of Australia? Yeah, well, I probably didn't know much until we went along as a school group to the local town hall in Swan Hill. There was a fellow, Keith Adams, while well, he lived in Perth, but he used to go into the Gulf country pretty much every year. He was doing a lot of crocodile hunting up there and we saw that as a school group and I thought, wow, what fantastic country. You know, he was in there, he was catching crocodiles and sharks and snakes and, you know, the full spectrum that that country sort of, you know, has up there. And, yeah, I was taken by it and thought, wow, it'd be nice to have a look at that country one yeah, day. Yeah, what was it? Was it the intensity or what was it? Yes, it's certainly the intensity. I mean, you know, it's um, you see these big sharks and big crocodiles and big snakes and, and the outback, you know, the remoteness of it. It was pretty big for a school kid to look at and think, wow, that's pretty amazing. So uh, you finally got to the Pilbara. Um, there was two of us went, myself and a cousin of mine. We'd been referred to a chap in the Pilbara to go and say hello to. And um, he was a fellow by the name of Jim Edwards and he owned Mount Edgar Station, east of Marble Bar. 
um, out towards the desert there. So we rocked up there. He actually offered us a job. So we worked there for $70 a week. Got a lot of experience and just loved it. Yeah, so doing that work, though, of course, you get to know Jim, the man behind it. And what was it about his story that was good for you? Well, well, we had known that Jim had been a prisoner of war. So uh, Whereabouts had he been a prisoner of war? He had been in Changi and on the Burma Railroad. I was never a good school student. I knew little of it. I knew of its existence, but that's about all. Suddenly I got quite interested at the time. The Herald Sun had a uh, reporter there doing a story on Jim Edwards, and he was there for about a week. So we were invited to listen in on the interview, and we you know, gained a lot of knowledge that I had been pretty naive about up until then. And, and Jim would talk to us, even um, outside the interview. He was quite open to answer questions, you know, and uh, our curious minds were asking questions, and it gave me a, a good grounding, I think, for stuff down the track. So you got married to a Melbourne girl? And went up into Queensland into into a property there. Whereabouts was this place? Where it was eighty kilometres southeast of Charleville, down what they call the Boatman Road or the road to Bollin. So it was a fifty thousand acre block of pretty much fence to fence mulga trees. Uh, it was regarded as a bit of a starvation block. Uh, went there from sort of having pretty much all the facilities at our fingertips in the Mallee to a property where there was a thirty two volt generator. Um, there was no airstrip. No air conditioning, of course, with 32 volt. Um, no DVD shop down the road? No, no. DVDs were hardly even heard of. They probably were about, but I wasn't very aware of them. Um, but we heated the water up with a wood heater and so forth, a hot water donkey, and it was, it was sort of back to the basics a bit. But you know, little was, you know, what I know that as the years progressed, I was even going to go further back to basics. But anyway, it was unknown to, at that stage. How did you and your wife adjust to this? Oh, well, I had no trouble adjusting to it. I just loved it. You know, to me, it was a challenge. I was out in the bush, um, you know, I... I was sort of was my own entity, and my wife from Melbourne, she took to it magnificently. I well, had her driving bulldozers and, you know, working stock. How was it bringing up small children in that kind of place? That was a challenge. We had uh, my son on school of the air. He would rather be outside doing stuff with Dad than in the classroom. In the meantime, I developed a bit of an interest in the opal. I'd pegged a claim down near Lightning Ridge, in uh, just on the Queensland-New South Wales border there. And I saw I was doing a little of dabbling in the, in the opal job. And for various reasons, we chose to lease most of the property out. I retained a little bit for myself to run some cattle there. And we moved then down to Hebel between Lightning Ridge and Durambandi because there was a great little school there. By then, our, our daughter was on the scene. And the little Hebel store came on the market. It was a very um, small business turning over something like, you know, 70 or $80 a day. Um, but look, we could see a lot of opportunities. The cotton uh, was starting to happen not far from the controversial Cubby Station. So we capitalised on, on what was happening there. We purchased the Hebel store and it just went like wildfire. But then you got drawn back north after running this general store, didn't you? What drew you back there? Well, I was invited to become involved in a safari hunting business. At that stage, then, there was a few problems uh, uh, at a personal level with, you know, with, with my relationship I guess the heatable store was sold. That enabled me then to focus more on working up in North Queensland, well, in the Northern Territory it was. Came to a property called Pungalina. First of all, tell me, where is Pungalina? Pungalina is in the Northern Territory, only um, by about 70 or 80 kilometres as a crow flies from the Queensland border and east of Borroloola, about 100-odd kilometres to the east. So it's on the Calvert River. 
Is there any road into it? Well, that was the problem. Pungalina had been abandoned for around about 13 years. And well, there's no one living on the station there. Nobody had lived there, no. Were there Aboriginal people living? There? No, not on the station itself. It joined an Aboriginal community, community to the west of us, but there was nobody living there at all. It was completely abandoned, and, and um, people were wandering in and out um, on the odd occasion, but generally found it too hard. So what was it like when you got there to this, well, this station that had been abandoned well, for 13 years? it took me... Um, seven or seven and a half hours to drive in the 64 kilometres to the to the remains of the burnt out homestead fire had been through what was regarded as the homestead now a homestead in territory standard is really yeah you know, a tin shed in some cases you know and that's all it had ever been people had resided there there was remains of an old silver bullet caravan there and a bit of rubbish laying around but fire had certainly taken its toll on it all so once you got to the station there it is the, mm. the homestead's burnt out mm. And it takes forever to get in there by whatever means you can. Mm. Um, what do you do? What, how did you start there? That was in October, early October. I rocked up there with a, a Nissan, a four-wheel motorbike, a generator, a few tools, a couple of dogs, and about two months' supply of tucker. And I just started from the ground up. And I guess the first thing you do is you try and make the place livable. So initially, I, you know, I rolled my swag out at the front on, on the, at the front of the, the shed. I got a fire going and put the billy on and, and you know, contemplated the task ahead and with enthusiasm. And then what do you do once you've cleared, cleared the wreckage away? Well, initially then I wanted to make it a bit more comfortable because you're talking um, late October, early November, and you're looking at temperatures 40, 42, 43, and there's not much of a breeze at that time of the year with the wet season coming in. So the idea is just to make it a bit more comfortable. So I took the back wall out, cut some um, stringy bark, saplings and set them up in the ceiling above me and then I covered that then with, with wire and then I lay paper bark. You take the, take the layers of paper bark off the trees, which doesn't damage the tree, and then spread that out and that stops that radiating heat off the corrugated iron roof then. So it made such a huge difference. It was great. So weeks and weeks are going by as you're doing this. Mm. Are you meeting any, any other human soul while you do this? No, no. Does that bother you? No, it didn't bother me. Um, I think the longest stint was seven weeks without seeing anyone. And um, and so the only way I could see anybody was to, to was to go out and leave the place for a while. Did you like the isolation? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't mind it, that's for sure. What, what would happen if you got hurt? Well, I did have a, a mishap. I broke my thumb um, just by, you know, in the, in the process of making the place livable. I, I did break my thumb right behind the fingernail. And um, How bad? Well, it was sticking up about 45 degrees at the wrong angle, so... <laughs> Reasonably bad. <laughs> so you're walking around permanently approving of everything with the thumbs up, right? <laughs> so how did you fix that? Well, I thought, well, it can't hurt much worse than what it is hurting, and it was almost reflex. I just grabbed it like this and pulled my sort of left hand over it and pulled Ow! it out straight like Ow! this. Thought, yeah, that looks okay, you know. No, no Panadol for that? <laughs> no, I, I just felt like throwing up initially, so I lay down for about five or ten minutes and until um, the initial bit was passed, and then I wrapped it up and put a bit of a wire splint over it and got on with the job in hand, basically. But, um, but look, you've certainly got to be very careful on your own. It's something I was very conscious of. Owen Davies is a man who, not so long ago, walked the enormous distance from Camel Wheel in North Queensland, following the Georgina River a thousand kilometres all the way down to Birdsville, and we're getting a bit of his backstory right now. Yeah. How about the wildlife, dingoes? Did dingoes ever give you any trouble? Yeah. Well, no, I hadn't had a much much experience with dingoes. One of the things I wanted to do was just see this beautiful country and start to explore it on, on foot or on motorbike or whatever. And I was taking a walk 
uh, one morning and I had I had had a dog with me and just walking along the riverbank and just admiring the beautiful scene. I mean, you've got this crystal clear lagoon, towering paper barks both sides, water lilies along the water, along the fringes of the, of the water, or the, the edge of the water, and just the sound of birds and it was a beautiful, peaceful morning. And I'm walking along, I just suddenly this big dingo come running up towards me, straight in front of me, full gallop. I guess it was reflex action, but I just put my arms up in the air and gave a big hoy, you know. And, and this big dog, he was only by near, was only six feet away. He just put the brakes on and pulled up, looked at me for a moment, and then sort of went back to join the others uh, who were just, there was four more dogs just back behind him coming in as well. But they were trotting in at a slow pace. It was the lead dog that was coming in to approach me now. Will a dingo go at uh, a creature the size of you? Oh, yeah, well, I think so. I mean, I've seen them take on big kangaroos as tall as me yeah, and pull them down, that's for sure. No. Look, it's a bit of an unknown quantity. These dingoes had never seen humans, you know, so they're opportunistic feeders. And, look, I don't doubt that if I had have turned and run, I could have been, you know, could have been in trouble. You mentioned there some of the truly beautiful natural features mm, of that, mm. that land there. And that was how, just the beginning. <laughs> how about the caves? What about the caves near that property? I was out one day uh, exploring a bit of, bit of the country further away from the homestead. Anyway, I saw this big hole in the ground and I threw a rock down. It just went down into total darkness and I threw this rock down and I could hear it bouncing its way down on about a 45 degree slope. I didn't do a lot with it at the time, but some months later I said to the kids... These are your kids you had up there? Yeah, yeah, point, yeah, you had the kids there. I said, let's go out and have a look at this cave. So we went out there and we took a rope out and we threw it down and descended down this huge opening... 25 foot across and probably eight foot high at the entrance and as you went down just got bigger and bigger and bigger and we descended probably around about 90 feet um, to where it bottomed out but then uh, horizontally it just seemed to go on forever and uh, we walked in it was a huge space it was like walking into a town hall it was massive down below and we walked on a little bit further you could see it was branching off in one direction there'd been no formations initially but then we turned the torch around to the left and here's this great big stalagmite 12 foot high or so, I, I named it instantly Totem Pole Cave because it was quite sort of parallel sides with a flat top and that name yeah, stuck, known today as Totem Pole Cave. It's well documented, wonderful. Had anyone else been down there before? No, it's certainly very unlikely that anybody had been into the caves. The people that had been there, you know, unless it had hoofs and horns on it, well, they really weren't that interested, you know. So um, it's unlikely that anybody had gone down them. It's certainly never been uh, documented to the scientific world. You know, I said to the kids, I said, look, just look at all these formations. This is beautiful. I said, you know, this is a pretty special experience. I said, what you're seeing here is something that no human has ever seen. You know, Not even, even Aboriginal people? No, the local Aboriginal people are very superstitious about the caves. I spoke to the tribal elders next door about the caves and... I could see Larry, the fellow I was talking to, he just got quite tense about the whole thought of going near a cave and just wouldn't accommodate it and did explain to me, you know, some of the reasons why. With all this being in this amazing part of the world, why did you, why did you have to leave? Life goes on. Um, I was there for nine years. We had an offer put to us by a conservation group. Yeah, we chose to take the offer and, and uh, get out. But a lot of regrets in many ways, you know. But, yeah, that's, that's life. And the idea of a trek had been burning inside your head for how long? Well, it started before the Pangolina Day. So we're talking, uh, I think, about 1998 when my marriage was falling apart. The idea of doing something personal and challenging just started to sort of enter into my mind. And so I, I dug out a map of Queensland, looked for somewhere remote, 
And of course, the Georgina River was the one that that come to mind. Um, it was running along the Queensland border into the Northern Territory, back into Queensland, and then ultimately into the Diamantina, which um, then flows down to Birdsville. Those days, I was going to do it with a backpack and a rifle and a knife and a box of matches. But, uh, you know, I got older and wiser, of course, in reality. that You never found the time. Never found the time. But no. now you had, did have the time. Yes. But the idea was to go on this trek with goats. Why goats? A lot of people have done it with camels, haven't they? Yeah. Why yeah. goats? Well, I had done a trek with Rex Alice, not actually with Rex, but it was Rex's operation. I went along as an offsider, offsiding to the senior and junior camelier on a trek across the Great Victoria Desert, north of the Nullarbor. That was about a 30-day trek. It was going to be with camels, and we were taking paying guests across there. And, and I, I don't really know what sparked it, but I thought to myself, at some point around about then, the idea of perhaps of doing my walk down the Georgina fired up again. I thought camels, yeah, well, they're big, they're bulky, they're cumbersome. They spit. Yeah, they can spit, yes. Haven't been seriously spat They run away. Yeah, all those sort of things. And, you know, if one sort of gets a bad attitude towards you, it can kill you. A goat's not going to kill you, that's for sure. So I thought goats, logistically easy to move, small, easy to put through fences, feed themselves, and why not consider the possibility of putting a pack saddle on a goat? Have you seen that done before? A pack saddle on a goat? No, I'd never heard of it. So I jump on the internet, type in pack goats. <laughs> and, sure, and something came up. Something came up, much to my surprise. From where? Who else has done this before? Well, it was happening in America and um, in Europe. There was uh, actual operators doing commercial tours with pack goats in America. <laughs> so I realised the equipment was available and the, you know it had been done. So I thought, well, it's been done over there. Why can't we do it here? You went on a test run beforehand. How did that go? Yes, well, um, myself and a friend of mine, Gary Piper, I invited Gary to come along to go out there and do a bit of a test run from Birdsville heading northwest through that Simpson Desert country. The goats were pretty green, as the saying goes. They'd all had pack frames on them, but not actual load. We set up a camp out there on the edge of a sand dune and spent a couple of days training the goats. I suppose the thing about having a pack animal like that along with you is it frees you to walk unencumbered, which yeah. is so much more pleasurable. Very much so. That's right. You're not weighed down by, by backpacks. I mean, I had a, a small backpack on, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't heavily loaded by any means. Anyway, we did that. 20-day test run, and it had just worked beautifully well. And I'd, I'd said to Gary, I said, look, within a few days, I said, Gary, if this looks like going okay, I want to go straight to Camelwell from here. And um, I knew within about five days, I said, yep, this is a goer. We can, I can do this, you know. So you drove to Camelwell with the goats and the dogs yep. and your provisions. What was the plan at that stage, I suppose, to what you did? What was the plan? Well, it was a bit of an open plan from a time point of view because by now it's September and the weather's warming up. And, of course, Camelwheel, that northwest corner of Queensland, is pretty hot. I just had the idea of maybe knocking a bit off the whole track. You know, I was saying, you know, you've got to get it out of your system. I introduced myself to a fellow called Pick Willets. Now, Pick, I think, was the last driver to take a mob of cattle down the Georgina River, down the, down the stock route because he's an old pack horse driver. And so, you know, pack horse, pack goats was a bit of common ground in some ways. Pick was terrific, and he was able to give me a lot of information on the stock route. Is there a track along that river that you can follow? Well, look, it's, there is a stock route marked there, but there's no track as such, no. Um, you do pick up little bits of track here and there, but predominantly, no, you're walking over black soil, cracky ground, through the channels, and pretty challenging walking at times. So there you are in Camelwheel with your goats and your dogs. The plan is to spend a couple of days there, acclimatising camel wheel, mm. ring all the station managers and owners before you go to let them right. know you'll be going through. That's right. 
and suddenly all that was finished and you had to get out of town straight away. Why? What happened? Why did you? Ha- why were you driven out of town, Owen? Well, you know, you're, you undertake a trek like that expecting certain challenges. But on this particular day, I was presented with one that I hadn't sort of banked on. I was going to spend about the uh, best part of five days with the things you mentioned. But on about day two, I walked into town just to do a few things and I had to post a bit of stuff and I went into the store there and got a few provisions and I walked out. The local law enforcement officer and his offsider were standing over my two dingoes, dogs. I walked up to him and he said, Are these your two dingoes? Were they dingoes? Mm, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah. domesticated dingoes? Very domesticated dingoes and look, just beautifully natured, never growled or snarled at anyone in their days, always wagged their tails. You know, One's a little bit shy, the other one was very much just loves, but they both love people. Nonetheless, they present as dingoes. Well, they look yeah, like dingoes. They look like dingoes. That's it, you know, you can't get away from that. What did you say when the police asked you whether they were, ding- are they well, were dingoes? I said, well, yeah, they are my dogs. And he sort of read the riot act to me regarding the you know the legalities of owning dingoes in Queensland, and basically said that he had every right to shoot them. He uh, took photographs, got all my ID. He said to me, he said, "I'm going to email these photographs off." He said, "If they come back confirmed dingoes, he said, "I'm going to be down at your camp in two hours, and you better be gone." So what he was inferring to that I pack my shop into my trailer and my vehicle and leave. Well, that had all gone. Gary had dropped me off two days before. I, I had, there was only one way for me to get out of there. That was on foot. So you had no four-wheel drive, no trailer? No, nothing. Nothing. That, that was all gone, yeah. And you'd just been given ultimatum to get out of town by the local cops? That's right. That's it, yeah. So and, and was your blood up a bit? Oh, it was up all right. Because <laughs> he threatened to shoot your dog. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, my blood was up well and truly. I legged it back to my camp as quick as I could. He actually, on, on, on a bit of the road, um, he actually drove past me. I loaded those goats quicker than they've ever been loaded before or since. So you made the decision to go? Oh, I had to. Made no choice. Yeah, I hightailed it out of there. And, you know, I was getting close to the two-hour limit because when you're not quite ready to leave, I mean, it takes a bit of organising getting that show, you know, on the road, so to speak, to load those goats and get going. So I did, and I just got a little bit out of sight, pulled up under a tree because it's pretty hot this time of day. Amazing enough, I heard a vehicle coming through the scrub, and I thought, oh, this fellow's out to nail me well and truly. He wants me, you know, dead or alive, more or less. Turned out it was Pick, which was a great sense of relief to me. And, you know, Pick explains, look, if you go down the river here a little bit further, there's a good body of water down there and certainly goats up on that bit of rough country there. He said, you're well out of sight and we'll come and see you later on today. This is like a Western, isn't it? It's well, like, get out of town with yeah, your goats yeah. or I'll, I'll shoot your dogs. Yeah, that's it. And, yeah. and you had to lay low out in out yeah. the, what, scrub country or something. Well, it was. You? Yeah, it was. It was a bit of rough country, you know. Because <laughs> this fellow, you know, like he was really oh, serious. Man. Yeah, he was. Because I... By now, I realised I'd, I'd defied his instructions totally, you know. And I had to go back. I, I, I couldn't get all my gear on the goats in that short space of time. So I planted a bit of gear um, under a bush not far from where my camp had been and uh, went back just on sundown and uh, grabbed a bit of gear. And here he is. This is the local police car cruising around looking for me, of course, trying to find out where my camp and where I've gone. Because he would have he come down in that two hours and realised there was no vehicle tracks. Where's this fellow gone? So he knew I wouldn't have been too far away. So, so I, you still had to get out, in other I words. I still had to get out, yeah. So when did you get out? When, when could you actually make a break for it? Well, I'd said to Gary on our initial try run, be interesting to try and do a bit of a night walk with these guys just to see how it goes. Of course, we never ever did it, you know. Well, it was about to happen that night. I'd made a decision to get out under the cover of darkness. That night, about 11 o'clock, there was um, better than half a moon. And um, yeah, I had the goats loaded and away I went. 
So did you walk all night? I walked till around about sort of, I think it was around about 3.30 or 4am. We left the river country because I knew this fellow, if he wanted to get me, he knew where I'd be in that river country. You know? So I actually left the river country, walked across a big open grassy Mitchell Grass Plain. Do you think of what would have happened if he'd found you and gone up to you, walked up to you, pulled out his gun and shot both of your dogs? Did you, did you think about what you'd oh, do yeah. if that happened? Oh, yeah, I certainly did. And um, uh, uh, look, my, my blood was fairly up, as I said earlier, and um, I, would have, I would have put up some resistance. <laughs> what could you? He's the law. He's got a gun, doesn't he? Yeah, well, you take my dogs, you take me as you take me too or something like that, you know. So, you know, Far out. Yeah. It's all very Ned Kelly, isn't it? Well, it was a bit. Yeah, that was the start of my trek down the Georgina. You decided to split up this 1,000-kilometre walk into two stages. Yeah. What was the plan for stage one? Well, the stage one plan was basically walk until I thought enough is enough for now because the weather was getting hot. You know, we were talking temperatures now of sort of, it was 40. So I continued to walk at night. There was the temperature advantage. I mean, there's a lot of disadvantages walking night time too, of course. It's, you know, the, the hazard level sort of goes up up a few rungs. What, uh, snakes, you mean? You can't well, see them? And, um, yeah, all sorts of things. Yeah. yeah, well, the snakes are certainly more active at night time than they are in the daytime. Um, but just the ground under your feet and so forth, and shadows, sticks, and yeah, it's just it's just a bit dangerous. Still, oh, still, yeah, it yeah. must be beautiful. Oh, it is. There's nothing about that. I mean, it is because it's cool, no wind, the calls of owls and, and the night birds and crickets, and it is. It is quite special. You know, a million, billion, trillion stars. Absolutely right. Yeah, very much so. And um, at that time of the year, there is. Are you still laying low, trying to keep keep out well, of sight of the police? Well, that's right, because, you know, generally most country coppers have got a pretty good association with all the surrounding people on the properties and so forth. And Oh, so you didn't want to be seen by anyone no, on the properties? No, I didn't. I, I didn't, because I hadn't contacted anybody, and by now I'm sort of reluctant to divulge where I am. I thought, well, if this fellow really hell-bent on getting me, you know... You're like a fugitive with goats. Well, that's what it felt like, you know. <laughs> and I thought, well, this fellow have his, have his informants looking for me, you know. <laughs> This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Owen, you didn't want anyone to see you. Did you run into anyone? An interesting situation occurred I think it was probably nearly a week later. I hadn't seen anybody. I come to a spot called Monkey Bore, and I'd walked till around about 11 o'clock that night. Now, the monkey water holes seemed to be dry. That's okay. And then next day, of course, you know, I wanted to spell the guts. I wasn't going to go early next morning. I was going to walk again the following night. But I needed some water, and I thought, well, I'll just walk the 600 metres back to this bore. I left the goats back at the river and walked back to the bore. And um, I thought, well, you know, you should be pretty right. I mean, you do get the ball runners, the people do the maintenance on the cattle troughs. They'll come around from time to time, but I thought, oh, I'll be right. I'll slip across here and get some water. And Murphy's Law, there was a vehicle turned up. Now, I didn't know whether this fellow had seen me or not. And I was sort of apprehensive to really approach this fellow. I thought, well, you know, I thought there could be some sort of reward for my capture. That's sort of what it felt like, you know. <laughs> you must have gone a bit paranoid, I suppose, well, being I on was. your own out there. Well, I was a bit. Well, I thought, well, really, it's funny. He must have surely seen me, so I'd better present myself. So I did, and he hadn't seen me. So you can imagine the surprise look on his face when this fellow walks up. There's no vehicle. No, there's nothing to relate, you know, how I might have got there. And this fellow turns around with a very surprised look on his face. 
and I introduced myself and his surprise turned into a smile and I thought, what's well, looking good, you know? And um, I said, look, you may have heard a bit about me. I'm a fellow that's walking in the river with the goat. He said, no, I know nothing of you. But anyway, look, he was good. One thing led to another and um, we had a good old chat and yeah, it was, it was great. And I caught up with him then, him and his wife at the homestead, at the Austral Downs homestead a few days later. When did you decide it was time to call an end for, to stage one? When did you decide enough was enough at the first stage? Well, it was looking a little bit, a little bit iffy when I got to Lake Nash. My maps indicated very little water because it's late in the dry season, so the water was pretty spaced out. And so I was contemplating possibly bailing out at that point. But I got to, to Lake Nash, and the only person I could talk to there was the helicopter pilot. I explained what I was doing, and I said, look, I really need to know what the water situation is further down the river. And he said, oh, look, plenty of water. So I thought, right, I'll, I'll keep on going. While there's plenty of water, there's no real reason to really have to pull up. The days are getting hot now. It's 42, 43 by now. And um, I thought, well, gee, it'd be nice to get to Urundangi. It'd be just a good little spot there because easy to access, public land. Yes, a little one pub town. So I was able to contact my son from Headingley Station. I, I walked up to the manager there. He said, yeah, by all means, use the phone. And um, I inquired about water. He said, jump in the Toyota. I'll show you where the water is, you know. So we went for a little bit of a drive. And I continued on down to Urundangi then. The plan, I think, was for you to bypass it, wasn't it? Tell me how you got stuck there. Well, yeah, I was going to bypass it. I'd, I'd said to my son, look, I'll meet you down at the Marion Waterhole, which is about 20 kilometres south of Urundangi. I'm still a bit sort of still trying to get over this, you know, this issue with the, with the dogs, with the dingoes. But I thought it'd be nice just to get a few, few provisions, you know, because I've been walking for the best part of a month now. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just sort of tie the goats up, settle the goats in there, and then walked into town and went into the, the, the pub come store and inquired about a few things. Nobody asked any questions. That's fine, because I could have pulled up in a vehicle around the corner anyway, you know. So there was no relevance to what I was, you know, what I was about. And I didn't, didn't say anything. So I loaded the goats up on sundown, and I could see all this cloud coming in from the west, big sort of storm clouds, and the wind was starting to pick up. And anyway, I thought, well, I'll just bypass the town and get down towards this Marion waterhole. And um, as I'm walking along, this front's coming in at an enormous rate, and I could see lightning, I could hear thunder, and I could see smoke, and I'm in mean, pretty grassy country. No. So what lightning was igniting the dry grass? Yeah, was yeah, it? yeah, it was, yeah. And I said, look, you're mad. I said to myself, you're mad if you try and expose yourself to this lot coming through. I said, the only sensible thing to do is to get into your danger and try and find some shelter. And once you got there? Well, as I arrived on the edge of town, people were running around. It was now sort of pretty much dark. The storm is really starting to hit. It's starting to blow pretty hard. People are battening down and running around and preparing for it all. And there was a fellow there. He looked at what I had, and he was a bit dumbstruck, as you can imagine. Oh, you had the goats with you? Yeah, I had the goats with me. They're all loaded. Yeah, we were sort of heading, you know. We're heading so off. this gigantic storm's rolling into town, hmm. and with the storm comes you, I'm guessing, bearded, looking very rough with, yeah. a, with a whole mob of goats and that's dogs it. walking yeah, that's into it. town with the storm, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Like an Old Testament prophet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, look, most of the population was fairly preoccupied with dealing with the storm. But this fellow, he, he said, look, I said, is there a radio ground here or something I can just find a bit of a shelter? And he said, yeah. He said, look, I, have, I can't give authority to, to use it. And I said, just tell me where it is. That's all I need to know, you know. So I headed off down that way. I actually found a little vacant shed before I got there. Pushed the goats, had to go right past the pub. And there was people running around everywhere, preoccupied with the storm, but went past the pub and I got the goats into this shed and it was starting to spit a bit of rain. I thought, well, I'd better go back to the pub and sort of explain what's, what it's all about because obviously, you know, there's a heap of people have seen me. The pub had closed, I guess, because of the, you know, the weather had been so everybody was preoccupied with, the, with dealing with it. But anyway, I went around this corner of the veranda and 
was presented by a woman there. She came out and said, G'day. And, and she said, What are you after? And I said, I was about to walk past it you know, 20 minutes ago with the gates. Oh, yeah, right, eh? Yeah, right. And that generated a few questions, of course, curiosity. And one thing led to another. And she said, Look, there's a few of us in, inside here. Why don't you come inside and tell us all about what you're doing, you know? And that was Pam, the publican at the Urundanji pub. And yeah, look, they were genuinely very interested in, in the whole concept and um, wanted to see the goats, you know, loaded next morning. But I said, Look, the storm had sort of blown over and um, I said, look, I've really got to move at night time. It's going to be stinking hot and I've got to be gone tonight and to make a bit of ground, you know. So she was a bit disappointed that I couldn't show, show them, you know, the goats loaded. But anyway, that's what happened. The, the storm blew over. I went outside. There was three fires off in the distance. You could see them all. Yeah, I loaded the goats about half past one in the morning and headed off down the river. I'm with Owen Davies, a man who's walked all the way from Camelwheel all the way down, a thousand kilometres down to Birdsville with bunch of pack goats yes goats fitted with packs to carry his stuff and a couple of dogs so that was stage one mm. stage two was to go from marion waterhole to birdsville following the georgina river for a bit anyway did stage two get off to a smoother start than stage one well yes it did but it wasn't without a hiccup i had taken a um a tracking system people could monitor my movements it was a little tracking device so i'd turn it on it would send a signal up to the satellites would go via google earth and send an email to the nominated recipients um, they'd click onto the link and they could see exactly where i was and it was a great little gadget you know um but anyway well, i headed off early so i had 600 kilometers to go and that first day and the preparation and the morning of the departure there's a lot on your mind and i overlooked to latch one of the packs and we headed off just on the first little bit of light to make some miles. And um, we walked about nine kilometres and I set up a camp, unload the goats and suddenly realised I was missing some equipment and um, mainly some items of clothing. But amongst the things missing was my little tracking device. And I thought, oh, blimey. So I quickly settled the goats down and I walked not all the way back, but walked about seven or eight kilometres back hoping I might have been able to find it. I found a few bits and pieces, didn't find the tracker. Then later that day, I thought, no, I've got to go right back to the start. So just before sundown, I left the camp, left all the gear behind, all bar enough, a little bit of food and a bit of a swag to camp that night back at the start. So I actually walked back to the start. So that day, I'd walked close on 30 kilometres just in that day, running backwards and forwards and going back to the start. Did you find it? Unfortunately, I didn't find it. I found all sorts of bits and pieces. I found, you know, some items of clothing, my um, soap with tooth mark holes and so forth in it. Um, Who'd been at it? What yeah, been dingoes added? and crows, and I suspect my tracking system has probably been carted off by a dingo somewhere. <laughs> I just hope we didn't push the SOS button on because it has an emergency <laughs> facility. I'd bite the wrong button, and well, goodness knows, all hell breaks loose. So walking then, it'd be, that must have killed you just to have to you know, go back and start all over again. But nonetheless, going on that trek then, as you're going down further south, tell me how the country changes and what you see as it evolves as you walk down there. There's not a lot of change in, in the Georgina itself. It's very pretty. It's a wide Coolabar floodplain. And at the time, it was sort of had a little bit of a trickle in it. But when it's not running, it's just a string of big water holes, big old man Coolabars, deep channels, and a lot of grass either side of the channels. Were you thinking of Birkin Wills and other explorers while you were doing Oh, yeah, I think you do. You, you, you certainly do think of those, those fellas. And you just think, well, you know, really I've got it so easy compared to those fellas. I know what I'm up against. I've got the good maps. I've got the navigation equipment, you know. Um, I've got the sat phone. Although it's personally very rewarding and, and, and challenging, it's just, just nothing compared to what those fellas were taking on. So I would do early morning stints and then an afternoon stint. That would make up my sort of 10, 12, 14 kilometres. So I was 
walking late in the evening, a little bit before sundown, and the flies were incredibly intense. So I've got a fly net on. You know, it's not something you would normally have to wear, but they were so intense. Um, so I was wearing a fly net, and there was millions of flies all over the front of it. And I'm walking along a, a cattle pad, you know, which is where the cattle go in and out of the water or walk often parallel with the water, through reasonably tall grass. It might have been, you know, a couple of feet high. And I'm just walking along there. Next thing, this snake comes up and lunges up out of the grass at me sort of pounced out of the way and it, it didn't get me I guess it wasn't seriously wanting to but it was certainly a warning strike and what kind of a snake was well it was it? a death adder yeah and um, when you say came up at you how, in what way it was struck up off the ground at me you know probably, what flying well yeah they just lunge out at they at you yeah and um which was amazing for a what's generally a small snake it was a big death adder. i'd never seen one so big it was probably two foot long which is big for a death adder and a thick bodied snake how know. close did it get to you oh, i'd say probably six inches yeah yeah yeah, before I could get a photograph of it, my camera had slid it off into the grass and was gone. But yeah, it was a sort of a potentially a pretty close call. What were you living off? What were you eating on this big long walk? Stage one, I'd, I'd lived off the land to a fairly large degree. Dehydrated food, um, you know, dried mushrooms, dried peas, beans, curries, you know, chickpeas and so forth. And a lot of nuts and so forth. But, but you supplement all of that with ducks, pigs... And river mussels all got further down south. Mm. The goats would have been very attractive to dingoes. Did a pack of dingoes ever make a play for you, your goats? Dingoes weren't a problem on the Georgina River. They become a problem when I left the Georgina and moved into the Mulligan. And I was warned by one of the station managers out there. He said he'd seen up to 14 dingoes in a pack out there. So, yes, I, I was a bit concerned about this, but it wasn't until we got on the Mulligan River we started getting issues with dingoes. I suppose the whole point of this walk is to, I don't know, unburden yourself of something? You wanted to do it. And you wanted to do it for a very long time. You knew you wanted to do it. Did you know exactly why you wanted to do it? Or was that something you hoped you'd find out? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. It's um, People have asked me that question. And I don't think I've ever come up with a satisfactory answer, Richard. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just a look. It's just a personal thing. It really is, you know. Yeah, look, I've always liked the challenge. Uh, you know, a challenge in the bush to me is, is um, something that, you know, fulfill some sort of need or something. Mm. Do you think you were trying to walk off some, I don't know, anger or bitterness? Oh, or well, yeah, look, certainly the first, when the, when the concept came to me, it certainly related to um, some a lot of personal stress in life. History has a bit of a habit of repeating itself, at least in my case, so I'd sort of gone around that circle again. And um, so the opportunity was there. You mean a relationship breakup? Yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. And, and now you'd been doing it for weeks and weeks. Mm. Were you feeling... I don't know, a lightness? Well, it's a distraction, perhaps. Just a sense of, well, you know, I'm not responsible for anyone out here except myself. Um, but the bonus is that, yes, you can get out there and there's plenty of time for thinking. You don't dwell on the things that go wrong in your life by any means. I'm not suggesting that. But reflect on life in general. Did that route take you close to desert country or sand dune country? Yes. When I left the Georgina River, the whole landscape changed from a constant floodplain of coolabar trees and beautiful water. I'm now moving from one system to another, um, cross-country more or less, and I was reliant now on man-made waters to get there and you know some local information. But I was advised not to go direct to the Mulligan River because there could be a water shortage up the top end of it, so I picked up another system called Sherbrooke Creek, and I moved down that system, but it became apparent that you know the water wasn't as good as what I was hoping it would be, and... Um, started getting first signs of some salty water. Um, I could see it in the landscape, salt bush and different plants. And um, 
I'd camped on a on a nice waterhole. It was a little bit brackish, but it was okay. Next day, I moved to another waterhole uh, named the Wanderer Waterhole. Got there and couldn't drink it. And I was fairly concerned. Um, I um, was still nowhere near, well, I still had a fair walk to the Mulligan River. Anyway, I moved on next day, arrived what was marked as the Mulligan on my map, and I thought, well, where is it? There's no river here. And all it was, it was a floodplain, a few small trees and a very small channel only a couple of feet deep and dry as chips. I was sort of potentially in a little bit of a bind because no water. Um, you can always walk back, of course, you've always got the option of going back. But looking to the west, I could see the head of a windmill sticking up on the horizon. And I headed for that. And much to my relief, it was operational and um, provided me with water. Um, but look, you'd find springs when you least expect them, you know, unmarked and come to a spring and think, well, how good is that? You know, and beautiful water. So what happened when you got to Air Creek? And you saw something really quite special there, and a very unusual phenomenon. Yes. Well, I'd walked all morning to get to Waterhole, which turned out to be undrinkable. We'd done 13 kilometres. So I thought, well, I'll take a punt on another Waterhole, and I walked another nine kilometres, and um, we got there, and it was good water. So now I was, on a, I was out of the Mulligan system and into an overflow from Air Creek. So I thought, well, I'll head south from here and pick up Air Creek itself. And I got to Air Creek, and it was running. I set up a camp there in a beautiful spot. Next day, I moved further down Air Creek, and I could see there where I made a camp. I put a little stick in the, on the, what, the water level, and next morning realised that Mulligan at that point wasn't falling, nor was it rising. So I'd caught up to the peak of the flow, and um, I thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder, I wonder how far up the tip of the flow is. And headed off next morning, I, and as I sort of moved my way along, I could see it was, everything was looking fresher and fresher, like there was water starting to trickle into little bits of gullies and so forth. And I thought, well, I've got a chance of catching the, the tip of this flow. And... Sure enough, I'm, I decided to want to get to it, so I sort of kept hurrying along and um, eventually caught up to this very tip of the flow. And this was from rain that had fallen months before up in North Queensland. And to see this was something really special, as the water was just creeping along and it was running down all the cracks and it was picking up leaves and it was flooding out crickets and centipedes. And I thought, wow, how special is this? You know, so few people have ever seen this. So this is water from rainfall from three months ago in North Queensland. That's right. Coming right down yep. into the southwest corner of the state. That's the one. And all these insects are... Yeah, getting flooded out. Flooding and the, out and, and ca- running out. And yeah, the- and there's leaves rushing, you know, getting all piled up with the lead of the water. It's moving very slowly, though. I was so fascinated by this. I made camp in that location when I spent the day and that night there. And I thought, gee, it'd be nice to catch it again next day. So I headed off next day and got to the tip of the flow again. And in 22 hours, it had gone three kilometres. Adria Downs. You got to Adria Downs. Yeah, yeah. And you saw your own footprints there. Oh, yes. That was the country that we basically covered on our initial test run, our 20-day test run out from Birdsville. You're coming to the end now. And with that end of the long walk, what does that feel like? Does it feel uh, uh, relief or is it? Are you, are you feeling a bit sad? Well, look, I, I estimated I had about 10 days from Adria Downs to Birdsville. It's a, it's a very different emotion from the start. Pretty wound up when you start a big trek and you get midway through and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're sort of relaxed. It's all starting to happen. And then you're on the last leg. So it is a very different sort of a, an emotion. And I wasn't happy or sad. I was just feeling, well, complete, I suppose, you know. Certainly not looking forward. People would say, oh, geez, you must have been glad to get there. But it wasn't like that at all. No, I was happy to stall off. Was Birdsville expecting a man to walk into town with a whole bunch of goats and a couple of dogs? No, there was only one person that was probably anticipating my arrival, and he kept it pretty quiet. 
Well, my last camp in the, in the desert that night, it actually poured rain that night. And um, I, so I made the big push that day, next day, to get into Birdsville. Otherwise, I would have spent another night out there. And I walked in very wet and cold. I thought, well, it would just be nice to get a photograph of the goats in front of the iconic Birdsville Hotel. Because goats being goats and hating rain went straight under the veranda, which had all just been nicely swept and looked very tidy. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is a bit, bit of a grey area. And, um, yeah, the doors opened on the pub and the patrons started sort of flowing out and next thing the staff are flowing out. And it created a lot of interest because, you know, it's, if somebody turns up with a mob of camels, well, so be it, you know. That's, people do that from time to time. But to rock in there with goats with pack saddles on them absolutely <laughs> stopped the town, you know, the, the locals and, and, the, and the tourists. And yeah. who else was there to uh, greet you there? Well, David Brooke phoned me. He said, oh, he said, Dick Smith's in town and he wouldn't mind catching up. I've told him a bit about you and he said he wouldn't mind catching up. So fellow walked over carrying an umbrella and it was Dick. And, um, yeah, he wished me, you know, congratulations. And, he, and um, yeah, he had a look at the goats. Unfortunately, at that stage, they'd, you know, they'd been de-rigged and so forth and were put under cover. But, Did it know. occur to you that you had begun this long walk in Camel Wheel as a fugitive from justice <laughs> and you arrived in Birdsville as a, as a conquering hero of some kind? <laughs> no. Well, certainly the, the, the Camel Wheel thing was a hell of a shot because Birdsville was just the other extreme. The local fellow there, <laughs> when I had the problem with my dingoes being sick, couldn't do enough to help me. He was just terrific. And um, so it was... Hadn't really... heard about that law. No, right. that's right. <laughs> well, it was, you know, what you might expect in a country cop, you know. So that was it. That was your great big long walk. You flew back over that country later in a, in a small plane. Mm. What did it look like from the air? I jumped in a plane. I flew out there and we're getting into this Mulligan River country and I thought, wow, this is just so barren and beautiful but you look at it and you think wow and I, I, I could actually see where I did my camp it was camp 64 and I looked down and thought blimey you know and just sort of visualised a bloke down there with a little mob of goats and I thought wow that's pretty amazing and I flew around and I landed just sort of stepped out of the plane and I looked across the landscape and um, and I just thought you know because I'd been hearing from people People would sort of say, well, what you've done is so amazing. And I thought, yeah, well, okay, maybe it is. But it didn't really dawn on me until I actually stepped out of the plane and looked across this treeless, totally treeless plane. There's a fair breeze blowing. There's a bit of dust flying up off it from the willy-willies and so forth. And, and I actually thought to myself, yeah, what I've done is pretty amazing. And there's a sense of know, gratification and fulfilment, and but it's a realisation that... You know, because I'd heard it from others that it was pretty amazing, but didn't really dawn on me till that day that yeah, it's been pretty special. Owen Davies, lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Richard. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.